Chapter 2. The Birth of a Passionate Personal Promoter Anyone can promote himself. Anyone can hire a PR firm, cobble together a press release, and get someone to cover it. The results will be better than if you did nothing, but probably not worth the effort in the long run if that is as far as you go. For most people, there's an ingredient missing. It's not money or time or writing skills or press contacts. Even utter soul-sucking desperation is not enough. If you want to be an effective promoter and achieve a massive level of exposure in the press without paying for it, the main thing you need is absolutely free. Passion is the foundation of shameless personal promotion. You could be afraid of public speaking or cold calling, but if you have passion, you'll do them anyway if necessary. You'll do anything you need to do, endure any rejection, hear no 99 times to every single yes. I use the word shameless very deliberately, because if you have passion at your core, there is no shame in putting yourself out there to show that passion to the world. If you're hiring someone, hire for passion. You'll know it when you see it. They'll be excited when they win, disappointed when they fail. Passion goes beyond self-interest, and people can sense that too. You can't fake passion. It's infectious, and if you're out there promoting yourself, you set the ceiling on passion in every interaction. You need to bring the energy, the passion, and excitement to every meeting, every interview, every conversation. No one else could be more passionate about your product or company than you are. Personal promotion is expressing your passion with a purpose. I have always been passionate about Scott Evest, even on day one, even when I thought we'd be 90% a licensing company and sell some vests on the side. But I didn't realize how vital my passion was until I put that passion for my brand to the test. Even more important than feeling it is knowing how to communicate it in person, on the phone, through words, and especially in video. Passion is the good side of obsession. Passion, combined with desperation, is a powerful recipe for success, if mixed in proper proportions. This passion is the foundation and driving force for all the success I've achieved, even and especially right at the beginning. If you start a business wondering how you're going to exit, you probably don't have the passion to sustain it long-term anyway. No crawling, just running. Like the telltale heart, I could hear and feel the clock ticking. Every second, every minute, every hour brought me closer to the delivery of the 3,000 vests I ordered and paid for. I was not comforted by the fact that I had a few months to promote them. I was panicked by it. But having the mechanism to pre-sell the items was a necessary step that opened up my opportunities to not just find an audience, but generate money. In my naivete, I hired a local Chicago PR firm to help me go after press. They were way over their head when I told them we had to go after major national media. All they had were excuses. They were used to marketing brands from Chicago, in Chicago, to Chicago. Maybe a little bit in Wisconsin, too. If I was going to sell thousands of vests, or even hundreds, we needed national exposure, ASAP. The relationship didn't last long. It was a pattern to be repeated with many PR firms into the future. I want to believe that someone else can promote my brand better than I can, but at the end of the day, passion may be infectious, but being able to communicate it to others may not be. A magical place. I never do just one thing. If I go to attend a trade show, I sponsor a fan event that night. If I travel to a city, I meet with potential resellers. 
If I plan a dinner with friends, I try to introduce them to other friends that might be interesting for them to know. So when the opportunity arose around March of 2001 to go to a mobile computing conference in Orlando, I tallied up all the birds I could kill with that stone. Disney vacation for Laura and me. We had already been there a couple times together, seemed like just about every time I changed jobs, and it was always fun. The show. It was small, about 250 attendees, but it was mostly full of press folks, and it was at a decent Orlando hotel. Seemed like a pretty good place to meet influential techie people and enterprise-level users and attend a couple lectures. My dad. He had remarried within a year of my mom's death to the woman of his dreams and was now living in West Palm off the money from the family business he sold out from under me. It sounds crazy, but I was still craving some kind of approval from him. I hadn't spoken to him since I got married, other than when he told my sisters and me that he would write us out of his will if we didn't start getting along after our mom died. I called this bluff, but later it turned out to be true after all. Well, true in my case. The trip turned out to be my first win on so many levels, and it really got my head back in the game. Laura and I beat my dad in doubles tennis at the Mar-a-Lago Trump Club tennis courts. She did most of the work on that, which made me love her even more. It might sound petty, but it was a super big deal to me at the time. My dad was a hyper-competitive tennis whiz, and all he did since retirement was play bridge and tennis, so chalk one up for my team. I was with my dad when I got a call from Dale Coffing of Pocket PC Passion for my largest single pre-order of vests to date. It was a relationship I had been building in the next few weeks since I had sent Dale a press release and he wrote about it on his site. When we first connected, I didn't even realize how influential Dale was, but he soon showed me. After covering Scott Evest the first time, I saw the traffic he generated and sent him a sample vest to check out. Then he covered it again. Now, he was placing an order, and my dad was there to witness it. Dale is a pretty fascinating guy. He's a preacher and started his site because he was passionate about gadgets, not to make money. His enthusiasm inspired me to communicate my own passion and to seek out people who had the same interests and enthusiasm. Back then, he would drive proportionately more traffic to SEV than most other sites, even today. As great as the exposure was, the sales were what I had to wave in front of my dad. Perfect timing. It wasn't all roses hanging out in God's waiting room. I mean, the resort community, where my dad lived. As he introduced me around to some of his friends, the common response was that they never even knew he had a son. Ouch. No photos of me in his house, either. I really wanted this trip to be the basis for some sort of a relationship with my dad. I even wanted to get him to invest in my company. It wasn't about the money at all. I really wanted him to be invested in me in some way. Out of the 50-50 split of people who got it, he was solidly in the non-believing half. Whatever. We still won in tennis. It's showtime. I saw no one I recognized or had even heard of at the conference. At the time, I was blanketing anyone who covered any kind of gadgets with press releases, emails, calls, and follow-ups. The Compaq iPack was a pretty hot gadget at the time, and so-called pocket PCs had a lot of buzz. I had vests designed with tons of pockets. This was a great match. The more media people I spoke with, the more I recognized that my highest and best use is to talk to the media. It was the first time I realized it, but it's something that I've come back to time and again. It's the core of being a passionate promoter. The highlight of being at the trade show was meeting some reporters, which resulted in one of my favorite articles of all time, 
titled Beam Me Up, Scotty Vest. They got it. They really got it. After meeting on the event floor, we went up to their hotel room and I did a full demo of the vest. They were my audience and they were speaking to my audience. Beyond that, they were my first major press article. It led to more pre-orders for the vest, but I really thought it would open some doors for licensing deals for the patent-pending pan. There were lots of ebbs and flows in the pre-orders. I sold 200 pretty quickly, but that was a short-lived victory since it was a drop in the bucket of 3,000. I kept making contacts, sending emails, and sending samples, but I needed to make a bigger splash. I was just getting warmed up. What fresh hell is this? Oh, it's New York. If you haven't been to New York in July, you have absolutely no idea how blisteringly, brain-fryingly hot it can be. It's not just because of the sun beating down on you, and it's not just because NYC can be a pretty intimidating city. It's because of the humidity and the heat bouncing up from the sidewalk after it rains down from above. In other words, it cooks you from both ends. It was a good thing I was really, really motivated to be there. Because if you don't have a great reason to be in NYC in July, there is no reason to be there. It was 2001, and it was my first time in New York. I wound up calling Barry Friedland, one of my contractors from New York, every time I got out of the cab or had to cross the street. It was a dizzying experience, and the weather was not cooperating. It was also the first time I'd worn my Evest 1.0 in this new kind of weather. I wondered if there was anything I could do about how incredibly hot and uncomfortable the Evest was before the 3000 unit production run arrived in the next few weeks. The Evest 1.0 was a thing of beauty, even though it was non-wicking, all cotton, black, and full of 15 pounds of battery-operated shit. 19 pockets carrying my life. Motorola StarTac phone, extra phone batteries, Nikon Coolpix camera, extra camera batteries, Sony Discman, headphones, tons of cords and connectors, wallet, Palm Pilot, spare CF card, CDs, and Energizer batteries, business cards, tons of business cards. After all, that's why I was here. The Men's Designer Collective was to be my first public trade show demonstrating the Evest 1.0, and I was here to make an impression. In terms of style, the Evest 1.0 is definitely more on the utility end of things. Having said that, no one else seemed to notice it was not haute couture, including the costume designers who put it on Matthew McConaughey in the movie Sahara. My experience in NYC started off strong. I was out in the world to pre-sell my vest at scottevest.com. That's Scott like the name, E as in electronics, vest like a vest you wear, dot com. It started on the plane, and I made an impression on the guy in the seat next to me. He said he'd get one when they came out, and I very quickly told him he didn't need to wait. He could pre-order right now. Well, as soon as we landed. We exchanged business cards. I didn't jump up and down in the aisle, but I felt like I'd just joined the Mile High Club. Figuratively, of course. I had to make an impression at the show. This show that turned out to me a lot more fashion-oriented than I even expected, and I was willing to go to any length to do it. I should have realized how fashiony it would be by the name alone, but I was all in. I set myself up to be a one-man promotion machine because I didn't have a booth at the event. My success or failure depended on me and me alone, and the clothes on my back. I was up to the challenge. I had to make an impression with the reporters and editors my PR firm set up for me to meet in the days after the show. I had hired them to fill the next two days of my trip with back-to-back press interviews, and they told me I would be thrilled with the interviews they lined up for me. I had to put my best foot forward, 
As I melted into a sweaty mess, I didn't feel like I was off to a good start. Sitting in the back of the crosstown cab that reeked of stale curry and cheap cologne, attempting to mask the driver's body odor, the hot air was blowing in through the open windows when we were moving, and sitting thick and still when we weren't. I had my elevator pitch worked out to the point that it was boring to go over it anymore. I even literally pitched the elevator operator at the hotel, and to this day, it tickles me to give elevator pitches in elevators and to talk to people wearing other brands of vests. I'm sure some people think I'm crazy. I pitched the cabbie, and I think I got through to him. I knew the show was being held at one of the pier buildings on the Hudson River, so we were getting close. Maybe the heads-tails-50-50 rule was shifting in my favor. I took a deep breath and raised my passionate personal promotion level to DEFCON 8, and every light, siren, and alarm in my mind was ready to make this trip work. It was like standing on the edge of a cliff and leaping without looking. Failure was not an option. It's showtime. Again. My decision not to get a $4,000 booth was based on my confidence that I could just walk around, press the flesh, and show off my vest to anyone and everyone in the crowd that would listen. The press covered trade shows like this, so if I hung out by the press room, I was bound to meet the right people. I asked my PR firm to set up some meetings at the show, but nothing came of it. I was on my own. I knew that they would want to hear what I had to say. They were all fashion people, right? Surely, they would be riveted by the most interesting thing that's been done with pockets since, well, the invention of pockets. This was tech-enabled clothing, and I invented it. As much as I was looking for pre-orders of the vest, I knew that licensing my patent pending Personal Area Network PAN, was going to be my biggest play, and getting major press coverage was the way to do both. Hi, I'm Scott Jordan, and wow, so that's what the evil eye looks like. These weren't gadget people. They weren't techies. They were dyed-in-the-wool fashionistas, and they could not care less about speaking to me. I homed in on a few meek-looking booth helpers and gave them my licensing pitch, but it was fruitless. If you've ever been to a show at the Piers in NYC, you know they're just cavernous warehouse spaces. And while you might not get lost there, you might not know where you need to go. I wandered around for three hours, talking to people, anyone who would listen, and showing off my proudest achievement, the vest. My cheeks hurt from smiling. My voice was getting hoarse from speaking over the din of the crowd. And I was getting more frustrated and pissed with each quarter-interested interaction. I didn't expect to close any licensing deals on the spot, but I also didn't feel like I was selling the idea of it either. My 50-50 rule fell flat, and I didn't even get to meet any press at the show. I just looked like a flasher showing off my pockets. If there was one bright spot, it was meeting Clinton Kelly, a fashion reporter and TV host who eventually did cover Scott Evest a few times over the years. He's a co-host on The Chew now, and he got what I was doing with the company. At least one person did. By early afternoon, I was hot, and my vest was pulling down on my neck and giving me a headache. When I finally found the gray, concrete, bunker-styled men's room and saw myself in the mirror, I looked like a sweaty, red-disheveled mess. Fuck it. I'm going back to the hotel. As I wound my way through the rows of booths and out to the blinding light of the street, my headache got even worse. I speed-walked through the doors, and it was even hotter than when I arrived in the morning. Looking down the street, there were no cabs in sight, and the line at the taxi stand was 30 people deep. I walked all the way back to the hotel, and I doubted myself for the first time since I started Scott Evest. Round 2 I let the doors slam behind me. They were fired. 
They would get paid, but they would just be gone as soon as I got back to Chicago. They weren't the first PR firm I fired, and they would prove to not be the last either. I couldn't believe that they were recommended to me. While walking to the hotel room from the convention center, somewhere between 39th and 40th Street, I stopped feeling sorry for myself and decided that if the convention was going to be a bust, I needed to start my press tour a day early. The PR firm was able to move up our kickoff meeting, and that change was what I needed to get myself back on track. As you can tell by the slamming door, it didn't exactly work. I expected to receive an agenda from my expert PR firm with meeting after meeting with press lined up for the next two days. I counted on not being able to eat because I was so busy. I practiced apologies for being late because my Today Show interview went long. They booked me for a grand total of three interviews in two days, and they expected me to not only do backflips, but to throw money, a lot more money, at them. I could do three interviews in an hour. I've set up three interviews in an hour. This was not a victory. This was not worth my trip to New York. These 20-something PR experts told me that no one got the vest, and they'd be better off pitching it once we had some big sales figures behind us. It was a comment I heard from many other PR firms over the years. How am I supposed to get sales without press? My mind calculated the costs. $2,000 for them. The plane ticket, a hotel room, a blood pressure spike, three days of my time, meals, cabs, the bottom line, PR firms are useless. I've paid big firms like MSL Group to create press kits and book a presentation for me at the Magic Conference. Not magical, it's clothing related. There wasn't a single person in the audience. I've had such junior people assigned to my account that they didn't follow up with samples, their grammar was atrocious, and because I was never CC'd on communications, I wasn't even sure they did any outreach. It's counterintuitive. There are so many huge firms. Every so often, I think I'm wrong and I hire one. And every single time, it doesn't work out. Maybe there's just a larger margin or tolerance for failure at bigger corporations. I want to believe someone else can do PR for me, but I have never seen it happen. I've been through at least 12 PR firms. If you want PR, you need to go out and get it yourself. I was on fire and almost literally... I had two days, and I was going to prove them wrong. I was going to do what they couldn't. I was going to make it look easy. I was not going home empty-handed. Hitting the hot pavement. It was 90 degrees by 8 a.m. I was full of coffee, and I was in the fight of my life. My scheduled interviews went well, and I was able to channel all my determination into delivering passionate but clear interviews. In retrospect, they were pretty solid opportunities, But my main problem was that there wasn't nearly enough of them. In 2001, print magazines were still actually printed, and most of them were monthlies. Any coverage I got could be a few months out, and maybe that would be a few months too late. Any newspaper coverage could be immediate, but it also disappeared immediately. I had to get more, and I was going to walk around until I found out how much more I could get. Maps? We don't need no stinking maps. If there was a press outlet worthy of speaking to, their name would be on the building. Oh, and it would be a big building. Why would I want to talk to anyone less than the best? I was on foot and walking as fast as the most jaded New Yorkers. The New York Times, ABC, NBC. My approach? Walk in, put on my most sincere-looking smile, and ask the receptionist to direct me to the floor where anyone who covers clothing, technology, or travel works. What? 
I'm the CEO of a clothing company that makes vests for carrying... If I didn't have an appointment, of course, I couldn't get in. I couldn't even get the names of anyone who worked there. I knew that if I was given a chance, just one chance, to speak to a reporter or editor, that my passion would shine through and they would love my product. At least one of the receptionists thought I was a little crazy. I don't really have a filter or a dial when I'm presenting my products to someone. If I start a pitch, the fire hose is fully open every time. I pulled out all the stops and came across with the same level of passion speaking to the person behind the reception desk as I would to the editor of the New York Times. Most of the receptionists loved it, and if it was up to them, they would not only have let me in, but put me on the front cover too. The problem was that my message was lost in translation. They just couldn't convey my passion well enough when they called upstairs, and no one took the bait. Although, they were the all-important first gatekeeper. They didn't have the clout to get me through. I left lobby after lobby with pockets full of gadgets, wires sticking out of my collar, and sweat running down my back. Condé Nast, New York Post, CBS, Wall Street Journal, The New York Times. It seemed like the 50% non-believers turned into 90%. I continued, mostly undeterred. Someone will speak to me. With each rejection, each denial, I become more determined. More determined to prove the PR folks wrong. More determined to prove the non-believing 50% of people I've told about Scotty Vest wrong. More determined that today was going to be the day that put SEV on the map in the national media. The Cold Lobby It was getting late in the afternoon, and while my brain was willing, my body needed some AC. I saw the Time Life building. I've heard of Time Magazine. Who hasn't? Perfect target. The Time Life lobby was freezing, which was exactly what I needed. As much as I wanted to collect myself on the couch, the lobby was small enough that I couldn't ignore the receptionist. I'm here to see the editor. She smiled, looked behind her at the lit-up directory of floors, then turned her amused gaze slowly back at me. Which one? she asked. I strained to see the sign and realized that Time Life wasn't just Time Magazine, but dozens of publications, and they were all in this building. Jackpot? All of them. I didn't hesitate. I didn't waver. She didn't stop smiling, but she also didn't move. I'm the CEO of a clothing company that makes vests for carrying... Hold on, hold on, she interrupted as I pulled my phone, some batteries, and a pack of gum from my pockets and hurriedly plopped them on her counter. You don't need to convince me. You don't need to convince them, she continued, motioning to the directory. Which editors do you want to talk to? Technology, fashion, travel, and pop culture. She slid a clipboard across the counter to me. It was a call sheet with thousands of names and numbers for the reporters and editors I wanted to see. When I read what it was, I looked up at her, then back at the paper. If you can get someone to talk to you, I'll send you up. I could sit in the lobby, the beautifully frosty, cool lobby, and call everyone in the building? Win, win. I would be heading upstairs in five minutes, and I'd even have a chance to cool off. The A's. Voicemail. Voicemail. The B's. Voicemail. 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 The C's. I realized that many would probably be screening their calls, so I left a message at the beep. At every beep. I talked fast through every part of every message, except my phone number, which I repeated twice. By the time I reached the single Z name, I'm sure the receptionist regretted giving me the list. I left dozens of messages. No missed calls on my cell. No ringing phone in my hand. I didn't even get through to one live person out of at least 40. Nothing. I was going home with nothing. 
All of the sudden, the air conditioning started to feel too cold. I thanked her as I returned the list and left the lobby. I was going home, not just to the hotel, but home. I waved down a cab and called Laura to have her look up when the next flight from JFK to Chicago was. PR firm one, me zero. New York one, me zero. I was pissed and disappointed and cold and hot and confused. I didn't know where things stood. I didn't care if I had to sit in the airport for six hours. It was the first and last time I ever quit. A short ride. I closed my eyes in the back of the cab to JFK. Then I felt it. The vibration of my phone in my perfectly designed pocket, working exactly the way I designed it to work. At least the vest worked correctly. I fumbled the phone from my pocket in a way I hadn't done the other 80 times I took it out today. It was a 212 number. Hi, may I speak to Scott Jordan? This is Jody from Time Magazine. You left me a message? I won after all. Rechange of plans. Just as quickly as the cab could turn around, I went back to the Time Life lobby. I only had about 15 minutes to collect my thoughts and air out the vest in the breeze of the open taxi window. It was the best I could do to dry out my sweaty vest to make sure it looked and smelled as fresh as possible for the occasion. I called Laura back to tell her what was happening, and although she played it cool, as she always does, I knew she was excited for me. The same receptionist was there, and she gave me a strange look while she tried to figure out if I got a call back or if I was going to be a problem. Hi, I have an appointment with Jody at time. She smiled at me when she called up to confirm and then directed me to the right elevator. Good for you, she said, and smiled ear to ear. I could tell she was rooting for me and felt partially responsible for helping me reach my goal. I learned something from that smile. Bring people along for the ride. If you care about what you're doing, really care, and communicate that, many people will want you to succeed. For every internet troll, there is a hopeful supporter. The rest, as they say, is history. The History of the Rest Okay, so the rest was not quite so historic. We had a great conversation and talked for the better part of an hour. We became best friends. I went off script and my passion came through like never before. There was no tension, and she told me that she would write about me in the next issue. Guaranteed. In fact, she was on deadline and my article would come out the next week. This was back when Time Magazine killed trees four times a month rather than killing pixels. She loved the vest and everything it stood for, and I gave her the e-vest 1.0 off my back for her to keep. She gave me the plastic fairway bag from her lunch to carry all my gadgets home. I was thrilled to hand over my sample, but it honestly was really inconvenient for me to get back home. Like before I invented the Scott e-vest. It was the only sample I had, and I wondered what would happen if I didn't get it back. There were bigger concerns at the time, though. My head was spinning on the flight home to Chicago. List. I needed to make a list. Set up a phone bank. Find a staffing firm to man the phone bank. Make sure the site won't crash from the time traffic. Find the latest date I could increase my order with the factory without causing delays. Send the clipping from time to the PR firm after it runs and get in the last word. And about three dozen other items. It would be a crazy week of late nights and early mornings to get ready for the magazine to drop, but it would be worth it. I wasn't coming home empty-handed. I was coming home with Time Magazine. The day the new issue came out, I was torn. Can I spare the time away from the phone and computer to run out and pick up a copy? I did. I leafed through the issue at the newsstand before paying for it. Cover to cover. Nothing. Did Jody have the wrong dates? Was this the wrong issue? 
I had just gotten an email from her yesterday, so it should be here. I flipped through again, and then I saw it. What? That's it? No website, no phone number, no mention of the revolutionary personal area network? Two orders. Two orders from Time Magazine. I'm sure they could hear me yelling all the way from Chicago. Postmortem. At this point, I had learned a bunch of things. I should do my own PR. Seeing reporters in person is overrated and unnecessary. Email and phone should suffice for much of it. Getting an article without a URL or at least a phone number mentioned in it is useless. There is no magic bullet, no matter how big the publication. I also learned that my shipment of vests had left China and would be arriving in the U.S. in about four weeks. As exciting as that was, and although I had pre-sold several hundred by this point, I hadn't pre-sold nearly enough of them and had to keep the momentum going. Beyond putting my scheduling in the hands of people who didn't get my product, what could I do better to ensure that all the rest of the press would have maximum impact? What did I do that worked? Control the message. I sent a lot of press releases. I sent press releases about the Evest 1.0 when it was developed, when it was ordered, and when it was shipped. I wrote about the personal area network. I would scour through Google for links to people, forums, and blogs that needed to know about it, and it was through doing this that I got my first real exposure even before my trip to New York. I also developed some killer press kits early in the Scott Evest era. Usually, they were laminated and had multiple sheets with a personal note, a press release, information about our products, our story, and graphics explaining how everything worked. It was the first version of the pocket map we still use today to show all the pockets and hidden features in our vests and jackets. To show off the personal area network, every sample was wired with headphones, and no sample ever left my hands without a 20-page press kit going with it. The press kit included directions, a company history, contact information, where to download images, my bio, and tons of company press clippings. I wondered if there was a secret to which press releases were picked up and which ones fell flat. There is. I hate things like Scott's 10 rules for press releases, so you'll need to imagine these as numbered if that's what floats your boat. Most reporters are some combination of lazy and busy. The more your story is served to them on a silver cut-and-paste platter, the more likely they are to run it. If you make their jobs easier, they'll publish your stuff time and again. If you screw up the basics, you've completely wasted your time, even if you get press on the front page of Wall Street Journal. The basics are, provide a cut-and-pasteable press release. Include your company name, URL, and or a phone number in ways that are impossible to cut out. Don't just embed a link to your site, spell it out www.scottevest.com. When embedded links get pasted into some blog editors, the link is lost unless the URL is in the text. Provide easy access to images, high res, with a clear link to where to download them. Be ready to get them assets in their preferred format if they have a special request. It's not that hard. Be available to questions within five minutes of receiving them. Speed is essential. If they want to talk to you, don't wait. Have samples ready to send, but don't just send them out to everyone. Be selective. More on that later. It's not bad to write a press release as if it were a marketing piece. It is. Unless you're pitching to an academic trade journal, the tone can be pretty casual. Toot your horn. Remember, they're probably going to just paste it, so what do you want them to say? In actuality, you're writing an article, not a press release. Craft your own sound bites. 
Here are some of my favorite quotes about me and Scott Evest. Imagine Bill Gates and Giorgio Armani stranded alone on a desert island, and you'll have a good idea of what the Scott Evest tech sport jacket offers. Scott Evest is the most significant thing to happen to clothing since the bikini. Do you know what these very complimentary quotes have in common? I said them, and they were quoted in publications. In fact, the Bill Gates quote was used by Fortune magazine. Now and until the end of time, I can repeat them and attribute them to these fine media outlets, all because I gave them what I wanted them to say, and they said it. We were one of USA Today's top tech gifts in 2001, but that quote is still just as true today. You can't control the message. It's a problem. You need to control the message, but ultimately, it's up to the publication, the writer, the editor, the publisher, someone other than you. As much as I learned and as finely crafted my press releases and contexts were in theory, you will almost never get a chance to comment and make edits before an article goes live. It's happened again and again and again. Scott Evest has been featured on the Today Show maybe three or four times since starting the company. If you told me on day one that I could say this someday, I would have assumed I would have $100 million in the bank. Um, I don't. So why not? The first four times the product was shown, yes, four, as in the number of letters and all the words I said after the shows aired, they failed to mention the company name, URL, or both. Four appearances, no mention. You can see a video of one of those times here and hear me yelling at the TV. I did everything right. I followed my own rules, provided quick feedback, sent samples, blah, blah, blah. I couldn't make the host say the words on live TV. It wasn't a snub, just an oversight. I've done custom photo shoots, written a page of great material, and had graphic designers spend hours creating amazing images to wind up with a blurb and no URL printed. I'm looking at you, New York Times. But you need to control the message anyway. Whether an opportunity fell far flat of my expectations or not, I always took control of the message. If a magazine didn't publish enough details to bring customers to my site, I still told everyone I knew about the exposure. There's power in being featured in a publication, even if you don't get any immediate, direct sales from it. Similar principles hold true with product placement. We've been featured in a dozen episodes of NBC's Chuck, ABC's Flash Forward, HBO's The Wire, Matthew McConaughey wore SEV in Sahara, Steve Martin wore us in The Big Year, and on and on. No one sees the label on the clothes. No one does the research, barely any searches, no sales. But I can, and do, say that we've been featured in all those places. When we were on Chuck, we sent a press release. Product placement is only as valuable as you make it. Books are a somewhat different story, since a lot of readers are willing to do the research and the company or product name is there in black and white. Ridley Pearson has included us in several of his books, as has Brad Thor and several other authors. We've even been featured in several textbooks. Exposure is either a division game or a multiplication game. You can either rely on a fraction of the readership to do the research and find you, division, or you can promote the fact that you are in a book to everyone, multiplication. Associating these with authors and books can translate to real money, but don't expect a summer home from the deal. Won an award? Same approach. We've been in Incorporated's fastest-growing companies list for many years. Internet retailers Hot 100, 
The IR Mobile 500, apparel magazine's most innovative companies, were featured in the New York Times Magazine's Year in Ideas issue and won other awards I can't even remember. All an award does is give you something to talk about. Use it as an opportunity to do so, and you'll be getting the best thing you can from them. If you don't use it as an opportunity, all you'll be left with are the dozens of sales pitches you receive once the winner's list has been published. One more thing. If you're not using video now, you're missing out. If you're not comfortable using video, work on it. It's the closest thing you can get to face-to-face -face interaction with people without going on a tour, setting dozens of meetings, and taking on all the expenses associated with it. Even if you prefer meeting in person, you can't deny that video has a vastly better return on investment. Video is the ultimate tool for controlling the message and communicating your passion. While creative editing, more on that in the Shark Tank section of the book, can twist and change messages, you still have more control over the message when you use video than anything else. Don't worry about spending a lot of money on a fancy setup. We took over a room in our office and converted it into a video studio with lights, teleprompter, and a full wall green screen setup. We spent significant time and money only to discover that the camera settings we had been using for over a year were wrong. All that work to screw up on a basic thing? That's when we went back to unscripted videos, and I shoot most of them with the camera on my computer or with my iPhone. Unscripted videos are easy, and they let your personality come through. They definitely get easier the more you do it, and it's not intimidating like speaking in front of a crowd can be. Just about every day, I send three off-the-cuff video emails. Depending on the circumstances, I'll either use MailVU or record the video directly into YouTube and share it as unlisted. There are personal messages from me, one person, to someone else, another one person. This makes for a powerful one-on-one -on -one connection, and by, you know, saying their name, they know this is a message just for them. I've taken time from my life to connect with them, and only them. A lot of people believe they know me personally because I have done this, and for the most part, they're right, whether they are customers, reporters, or interviewees. Communicating passion is huge, and I haven't found a better or faster way to do it than through video. How else can you make such a strong connection in six minutes a day with three people that you may or may not know? I've even had some vendors ask if they can use videos I've sent them publicly or if I can shoot an endorsement specifically for them. HQTS is my factory inspection team, and they visited my office in Idaho in part to get a video with me for promotion purposes. Same thing with the AB testing provider Frictionless Commerce. Miva is our longtime shopping cart platform, and they even sent a professional film crew to get my video endorsement. Passionate promoter tip. They all spent their time and money to develop and promote me talking about them. Free exposure, easy setup, all because of video. Using video this way has even been the start of some great working relationships and friendships. Years ago, we received an order from someone named Amy Tan. My wife Laura was a fan of her books, well, the books of the author Amy Tan at least, so we decided to reach out to her and ask if she was THE Amy Tan. She was. We replied with a quick, simple, but personal email to let her know how much we enjoyed her work and appreciated her business. We continued to communicate and have built a friendship over time, visiting each other when we can.